is Palm Sunday. If you're of a traditional Christian religion, you might know that this is the beginning of what's often called Holy Week. And Palm Sunday, of course, commemorates the beginning of the week when Jesus rode in to Jerusalem. I asked Alex to pick me up a palm frond, and he got me this baby. He, he, he does all things big. So pay attention, pay attention, or else you might... <laughs> but you know the story. Jesus comes to Jerusalem at the beginning of the week, and he's riding not on a majestic horse, the way you see the statues around the world of leaders and conquerors perched upon their steed. He comes riding on the colt of a donkey, a deliberate symbol of humility, a deliberate contrast to the way that leaders of the world ride in. And the people who are most eager to welcome him grab palm fronds as well as their coats and they spread it out in the streets and they do this. But what they're doing is something actually beyond worship. The palm frond actually represented the symbol of independence to the Jews. This was a very political statement. They were expecting Jesus to come as the conqueror. They were expecting him to come as the one who would overthrow. Because remember, these are the people who are in the promised land that God had given them, but they've seen Philistines, Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, and now Romans in control of that land. They're yearning to be free. They're yearning to go back to the good old days, if you will. And they believe that Jesus is the one to get them there, well, at least some of the people. And so they're waving their palm fronds, they're laying their coats in his path, and they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And we think Hosanna is this nice, beautiful worship word, right? Hosanna literally means save us. It literally means deliver us from our oppressors. And so that's the picture of the crowd there on Sunday. In Luke's gospel, he tells us Jesus' perspective. And what he says is this. As he came closer to Jerusalem and he saw the city ahead and he began to weep, how I wish today that all you people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late. And peace is hidden from your eyes. Jesus is coming as the prince of peace. They're looking for the conqueror. They're looking for the one who will overthrow And, of course, he's weeping because he knows that in just another generation, the Romans will come and destroy the temple and will destroy Jerusalem because the people choose the way of violence. And so that Palm Sunday crowd, its hopes fixed on the idea of vengeance, its hopes fixed on the idea of personal independence, makes three mistakes that I think are informative for us. The first is they misinterpret the symbolism as revolution. They think a revolution is about to happen. They misread the intention of Jesus as the restoration of Israel. They didn't have them back then, but somebody would have been wearing M-I-G-A hats. Make Israel great again. They thought that's what Jesus was there to do. And thirdly, they misidentified the enemy as Rome. In fact, Jesus is leading a revolution that day, isn't he? But it's a revolution in the sense that Jesus is establishing a new kingdom. Not a new nation, but a new kingdom. 
not the one people expected. See, his real intention as he rides in there, God's real intention through Jesus is the restoration not of Israel, not of any single nation, but the restoration of all of creation. That was the plan from the beginning. In Colossians chapter 1, when it says, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him, listen to this, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Because after Sunday comes Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then what? Good Friday. The week that begins with people praising Jesus. The week that begins with people's idea of Jesus being the conqueror, being the overthrower, winds up with him on the cross because he doesn't live up to their expectations. And they misidentified the real enemy. The enemy is not Rome. The enemy is never people, is it? The enemy is always spiritual. The Bible tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers, wickedness in the high places. And that is where we are led. That is where we must understand that no matter how annoying that person is, no matter how much they have hurt you or they have let you down or they just seem to be opposed to everything that you value, everything that you care about, that person, that flesh and blood is never ever the enemy it's never the person that you need to take it out on never the person that you need to harbor ill will against never the person always the spiritual powers our real enemy is the devil you believe in the devil don't you he believes in you the real enemy is the devil and the forces of evil that wage war against this good creation that god is intending to re create. Scripture's full of this. It says in 1 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan is the God of this world. In 1 John 5, 19, the world is under the power of the evil one. Ephesians 2, 2, Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Last week, Alex was sharing that God is bigger than our sin, that sin is about separation and isolation, that it's everything that causes a distance between us and and God. But today we're talking about how God is bigger than the source of that sin. God is bigger than our enemy. Jesus calls the devil the one who is a thief, the one who comes to steal and kill and destroy. Well, he steals our faith, he kills our relationship with God, and he comes to destroy our souls. Not because we're anything special to him, but because we're something very special to God. God's heart is for us, and if the enemy can come in and separate us from that, then he achieves his goal. Peter describes him as a lion on the prowl looking for someone to devour. He doesn't have our best interests at heart. He is our enemy. And Jesus comes to make war on the enemy, and he points to the cross as the battleground, as strange as that might seem. The cross is where he will take on the enemy. Jesus says this as he gathers the disciples on the night before he dies. He says, the time for judging this world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you this morning. 
We thank you for the victory that we have in Jesus and pray that you open our hearts and our ears now to hear so that this truth may penetrate the lies, may penetrate the difficulties we have in believing that we are your children and that you have set us free. We pray, Lord, that you would just have your way, that we would walk out of here leaving all of the baggage on the ground, casting it into your hands and living in freedom living in peace and living in security because victory has been won. We thank you. Come in Jesus' name. Amen. When I grew up, my father loved watching war movies. If you're of my generation, you'll remember back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, they made an awful lot of war movies based on the Second World War, movies with titles like Torah, Torah, Torah. You ever heard that? You know that movie? I just found out this morning, by the way, here's your worthless trivia. I always like to throw worthless, worthless trivia in. Torah is the Japanese word for tiger. And when they said Torah, Torah, Torah over the radio after Pearl Harbor, that means that the lightning strike on the harbor actually was successful. Well, I found out this morning the lead pilot, the man who led the Pearl Harbor attack, actually wound up becoming a Christian and became one of the biggest evangelists of his era in Japan. That's amazing. But Torah, 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 great movie if you've never seen it. Or how about The Dirty Dozen? Not the late one, the original one. Or Anzio, The Bridge Over the River Kwai, The Battle of the Balls, The Guns of Navarone, Kelly's Heroes, all of these kinds of movies my dad and I would just sit there and watch. But one of my favorite was this movie called The Longest Day. The Longest Day, great movie. Everybody who was anybody in Hollywood at that time is in this. You can recognize John Wayne, Henry Fonda. Um, who's the guy on the left? Mitchum. Robert Mitchum. That's, I couldn't think of his first name. And, and a whole list of anybody who was a great actor in that time period is in this film. And The Longest Day, of course, is the name, the reference to D-Day or what was known as Operation Overlord, officially in military terms. This is June 6, 1944. June 6, 1944, when the Allies had decided it was time to try to breach the beachhead on Normandy, France, so that they could begin to push back. Here's a picture of the unloading of some of the troops as they're approaching the beach. The goal is liberating Western Europe from Nazi Germany. 160,000 men crossed the English Channel, 5,000 such landing boats and assault craft, 10,000 estimated casualties on that day, including 4,418 confirmed deaths. Just an amazing military operation, and it changed the course of World War II. From this point on, the advance of the Nazis was reversed, and their power began to diminish and diminish until they ultimately surrendered to the Allied powers about eight or ten months later. Well, in a way, Good Friday, the day of the cross, is like D-Day in the war against evil. Think of it that way. Look at what Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. It says this, you were dead because of your sins, and because of the sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. 
He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and the authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Now, how strange is that? How strange to picture a man whipped, beaten, scourged, bloodied beyond recognition, nailed to a cross and lifted up as a symbol of victory. And yet Paul's telling us that's exactly what happened. The enemy is defeated not by violence. The enemy is defeated not by vengeance, not by the power of God coming and smashing and defeating them, but by the power of the love of God receiving in his body all that sin and violence and evil can do and giving up his life so that we can gain victory. By nailing it to the cross, it says he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He took their power away. There is no power left in the enemy. I'm here to tell you that today. There is no power left in the enemy. I want you to believe that. It doesn't mean he's not fighting against you, but he has no power over you anymore. God is bigger than our enemy. Greg Boyd says this when he describes what Jesus did on the cross. He says, forsaking the use of power over others for the sake of expressing the power of love toward others, that is what the kingdom of God looks like. And when it is manifested, as it is most decisively on Calvary, it defeats the rebellious gods of the age. Notice this strategy. Strategy. Implement this strategy in your life. Forsake the power over others for the sake of the power of love towards others. In other words, give your life away the way Jesus gave his life away for you and for me. That's the kingdom of God. That's how we live out the victory that Jesus won for us on the cross. That's how we defeat the rebellious gods of this age. It's brilliant. No one saw it coming, including all of the religious people of Jesus' day. They all wanted him to proclaim the kingdom of David. They all wanted him to become the exact representation of the law. The military people wanted him to rise up and overthrow with power. And instead, Jesus loved them. So that he's on the cross, what does he say? Father, forgive them. Not condemn them. Not destroy them. Not the way we view our enemies. Not the way we would like things to come out against people that hurt us and damage us and want ill will towards us. But through forgiveness, through love, we conquer. It's completely backwards, I understand. It's hard to rationalize. It's more difficult to implement in our lives, isn't it? But it's the Jesus way. It's the kingdom way of victory. Because, see, it's always been this way. This is what God had in mind all along. The cross didn't catch God by surprise. It wasn't, oh, now we got to go to plan B because my son is being crucified. 
all along, right from the very beginning, it was prophesied. What's the first prophecy in Scripture? We go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We have the snake and Eve. And Jesus, or God says to the snake that the son of the woman, meaning Jesus, will crush your head. That's the very first prophecy in Scripture. If I were to ask you what's the most referenced Old Testament verse in the New Testament, it's Psalm 110, and it says this, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble you until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. That is the most used Old Testament verse spoken by Jesus and the rest of the writers in the New Testament. So it's always been prophesied to be this way. It also is demonstrated in Jesus' ministry. Think of all the deliverances and the healings that are in the Gospels. Pick one, pick any of them, and what you'll find is Jesus' triumph over evil Think of the, the woman who he says Satan has kept bound for 18 years. Satan. Who's he placed the blame on? Satan, right? It's not the woman's fault, right? It's not God doing it to the woman. It's the enemy who's kept this woman bound for 18 years, and Jesus comes along in his ministry and delivers her. Power over the enemy. In Acts 10, when Peter's talking to Cornelius, he sums it up this way. Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. This is Jesus' purpose in his life. Sometimes we want to go right from Christmas to Easter and we skip over the life. But the life of Jesus demonstrates the power over the victory. It shows us the way of the kingdom. And it's always the way of love. And then, of course, it gets completed on the cross. He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. They are powerless. He shamed them publicly, meaning he ridiculed them. He saw that they had nothing left, that there was no power that they have over us. He shames them by his victory over them. The paradox is, catch this, the paradox is when Satan had his minions crucify Jesus, he thought he was winning, right? He thought that's the way to get rid of the Son of God. And ironically, Jesus turns the whole thing on him. But we know this, that while it was prophesied, while it was fully demonstrated in Jesus' ministry and completed on the cross, it's not yet fully manifested, is it? This victory is kind of a now, not yet thing. Even in the book of Revelation, we have the promise that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things, it says, are gone forever. But not yet. See, the now result of the cross is this. He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased us given us freedom and forgiven our sins. That's the reality. That's where we live spiritually. That's our life. Jesus' triumph over evil is real for us. The enemy is defeated. And he's given it to us as the church to nurture it in the world around us. We talked a couple of weeks ago about Jesus at Caesarea Philippi saying to us, upon this rock I will build my church, and what? 
the gates of Hades or hell will not prevail against it. Why? Because we have victory. The victory has already been won. We just have to live in the victory. We have to incorporate it into our lives as a reality and live out of it instead of giving the enemy room. Because, see, oftentimes we're our own worst enemies, right? Playing right into his hands. But we have to live out. We've been given this beautiful calling as the body of Christ, as a community, to live out the reality of the kingdom life, to bring the good news of the kingdom to other people. Remember Peter's first sermon on Pentecost is, God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. It's already done. So what does victorious kingdom living look like? I want to suggest three things to you this morning. The first is we have to be mastered by Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, he really has to be Lord. We have to consider him the one who gets to call the shots in our lives. We have to build our mindset and we have to build our character and we have to complete our actions based on what we see in Jesus, based on what we know he's called us to be, what he's called us to do, rather than getting influences out of our own selves or from anywhere else in our culture it has to be jesus is lord that is the gospel now you might say well i heard jesus is a savior well he is savior but salvation in scripture is really just another way of saying the kingdom come and so that kingdom that we live in this kingdom living we're talking about means that we answer only to one person that being Pastor Al, I mean, Jesus. Because <laughs> here's the way Peter says it. He says, you are free. Amen? We're glad to be free, aren't we? He says, you are free, yet you are God's slaves. Another paradox. You are free, but you're God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Don't play right back into the enemy's hands, in other words. Mastered by Jesus. Secondly, we have to become intimate with God. We need to be in close, continual relationship with God. Jesus' brother James says that we are to come close to God, and he will come close to us. Resist the devil, and he what? He must flee. All we got to do is resist the devil, and we resist the devil best by being intimate with God. Because God is the power behind our victory. We're not the source of power. He is the source of power through his Holy Spirit. And so as we draw close, what does it mean to draw close? Well, it means to put in those spiritual practices that we talk about. Reading God's word, listening to God's spirit through prayer, hanging out with God's people so that God can speak among us. Intimate with God. And then thirdly, we have to be empowered by the spirit. Scripture tells us clearly, Romans 8, one of my favorite chapters. If you haven't read it, go back and reread it. You'll be very encouraged. In Romans 8, 12, it says, If through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the sinful nature, then you will live. See, it comes through God. The power of the victory comes through God. All of the sinfulness, all of the evil that is inherent in us is destroyed, put to death. It's interesting that he would use crucifixion there too. 
See, Christ's victory over our enemy means more than just this personal freedom. It means more than just I get to go to heaven when I die. It actually means our whole world can be renewed. Can you get a picture of the people of God living like we were triumphant, living like we were victorious, living like we were plugged into something greater than the world could ever give us? Think about it. All the people who claim Jesus... <laughs> If we really let Jesus close, if we really let his spirit lead us and guide us, what could be changed in the world? Greg Boyd goes on to say this about Christ's victory. He says, Christ's victory inspires disciples to live countercultural lives that are persistently on guard against the demonically seductive pull of nationalism, patriotism, culturally and endorsed violence, greed, racism, and a host of other structural evils that are part of the spiritually polluted air that we all breathe. See, this victory is not just for us as individuals. In fact, I would contend it's not about us at all as individuals. If it were us as individuals, then the moment you gave your life to Christ, he would take you up to be with him right there and then. But you're here for a purpose. You're here to be a part of the body. You're here to be a part of the people of God so that God can do something on the earth out of his great compassion and love for all of those who don't know him, all of those who are still in the clutches of the enemy. He's counting on you and me. He privileges us to come and be a part of what he's doing. So more than just overcoming your personal sin, imagine the church rising up and overcoming all of these things, the nationalism and the patriotism that causes violence and greed and racism and all of those things that stir us because they're injustices and they hurt people and they cost people their lives and their value and their dignity. And we sit back and say, God, why don't you do something? God says, I'm waiting for you. I've given you the victory. I've given you the power. When are you going to use it, church? Scripture encourages us. It says, don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. All of those structures, all of those power structures of injustice aren't going to come down simply because we all rise up and protest with our voice. They're going to come down when we, on a one-to-one -one basis, begin to deal with people that have influence, to deal with people who are being oppressed, people who are on the margins, going out of our comfort zones, because that's where the power's most needed. That's where God is calling us. The good news of the kingdom is this. If I can encourage you with anything this morning, the good news is because Jesus triumphed over evil at the cross, because of Good Friday, we can live as free people, but we can also liberate others. We can. All those big structures can come down. All of those individual people that you love so much that are hurting, that are in need, their lives can change in an instant. Because that's the God who's bigger than our enemy. I hope you believe that. I hope you take that to heart. But please understand this. There is a price to pay. This is still warfare. 
And laying down our lives for others is the only path for us in victory. Just like Jesus, we have to go to the cross. That's, he told us that, right? He said, if you want to follow me, you've got to do what? Lay down your life, take up the cross, and follow. There's no other path. It's not pretty. It's not easy. But it is the way of Jesus. There's still warfare. See, thousands, tens of thousands of men died in those last 10 months of World War II between D-Day and the surrender in Germany. Tens of thousands. Here's a picture of my uncle. That's my uncle Guy. Not uncle, it's uncle Guy, not an uncle Guy. My uncle Guy is standing over the temporary grave of my uncle Dan. You can't make it out, but it says Daniel W. Murray. W stands for Webster. Daniel Webster Murray was 24 and a half years old when on March 13, 1945, trying to cross the Rhine River and take the hill at Honnef, Germany, he was killed. The irony is Guy fought for all four years of the war, never a scratch. Dan had only been in the war for a few months and was killed. One of my most prized possessions. This is Dan's prayer book that he was carrying in his pocket when he was killed. It's actually stained with his blood. Dan believed in something and he gave himself fully for the cause. He paid the price, even though D-Day had happened, even though the Nazis already knew they were defeated. He gave his life. March 13th. Germany surrendered on May 8th of that year, less than two months left in the war. And he paid the price. So we're called to give our lives as well for the cause of the kingdom of God. But we must fight with love and not with violence. Our commander has given us the order. Our commander has told us, you and I, the same thing he's told every believer from the beginning. The apostle Paul saw it this way. He said that God told him, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. So picture someone in your mind who you love. Picture someone in your mind who you know is in the midst of a great struggle that needs the power of love, that needs the power of Jesus Christ. Picture them being turned from darkness to light and from the power of evil to power of God, receiving forgiveness, finding their place among God's people, set apart by faith. That's the message we carry. That's our responsibility is to be those that go and give their lives if necessary to make sure that the victory over the enemy is secured for as many as possible. Truth is, just like Paul discovered, not everybody's going to accept it. 
Not everybody's going to embrace it, but you and I are to be found faithful because it's the difference between life and death for others. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. What's the message of the cross? Three things quickly as I finish. First, know this. Sin is debilitated. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin may lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. That's Romans 6.6. 6. Sin is debilitated. Secondly, Satan is defeated. One of my very favorite verses. Here's the one you should memorize out of today. 1 John 3.8. 1 John 3.8 says this. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Do you think he succeeded? Say yes. Okay. Satan is defeated. And then thirdly, what we'll celebrate next Sunday, death is overcome. Sin is debilitated. Satan is defeated. Death is overcome. The writer of Hebrews says, Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have their lives, live their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. There's no more fear in death. Amen. Sin is debilitated. Satan is defeated. Death is overcome. So here's the conclusion. The war is won, but it's not over. The cross assures us of victory, but the struggle continues. God wants everyone to be saved, everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth of Jesus through faith in his cross and in his empty tomb. And it is our privilege, it is our duty to fight the good fight of faith, both for ourselves as well as for those who are not yet free. And it is a fight. And it's spiritual warfare. And spiritual warfare requires spiritual weapons, spiritual disciplines in our lives. Alex is going to come and close us out by sharing communion together. And just, just think about this for a second. Communion, this table, is what Jesus gave us to commemorate the victory. Most of the times you put up a big monument, right? It says, hey, this battle was fought here and this was won. And Brian Zahn, one of my favorite pastor and writers, always says, it's always some dude on a horse. <laughs> now it's Jesus. Jesus says, it's a table. It's for you to come as often as you come and remember the victory. Remember that God is bigger than our enemy. So as Alex leads us, I want you to contemplate two questions quickly. First is, am I living in the victory that Jesus won for me? No one should leave this place this morning unsure. No one should leave this place feeling anything less than the love of God that sets them free. And then secondly, what price am I willing to pay to bring the good news of the kingdom to others still trapped behind enemy lines?
Let's just prepare ourselves for communion just as we close this service out. If you want to just bow your heads in prayer. When I was a, a young boy living in the UK, every year we would celebrate D-Day because we knew the realities. We grew up with people who saw firsthand just the evils of the Nazi regime. But we would also celebrate a few months later VE Day, Victory in Europe. And this morning we're going to come round what we call the Lord's Table, Communion. And Chris already spoke that the cross was like D-Day. It was the moment that death was defeated, sin was defeated, the grave had no more power. But the Apostle Paul writes, he says that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he took the bread, he broke the bread, and he passed it out. He said, take this body, which this bread, which represents my body, which is broken for you. Then it says, after supper, he took the cup and he held the cup and he said, this cup represents a new covenant sealed by my blood. No longer a list of do's and don'ts that you have to keep, but living in my grace and my mercy and forgiveness. But he says, do this as often as you meet together until the Lord comes again. And if D-Day was the cross, then when Jesus comes again is V-E Day. The day where fully we are liberated from this world. But right now we're in that in-between moment. But we know victory is coming. And so in a moment I'm going to pray and then I'm going to ask you to get out of your seats. And for those of you on my right, then just here on your left there's a stall with communion. I'm going to ask you just to get out of your seat and if you want to partake in just the bread and the cup. And if you're on my left, then just to your right, there's a stall. You can get out of your seat and partake. But this is a table that is welcome for all. It's not for people who have signed a membership agreement or people who are living perfect lives. It's for all. It's for those who are living well, those who are struggling. Those who are living free from sin and those who are still struggling in their sin. It is a table for those who have large faith and for those who are even doubting in their faith. So as you get up this morning to take communion, do it with this assurance that whatever evil is trying to pull me back to pull me down, trying to destroy me. Its power is weak. For Jesus is bigger than evil. And as we take the bread and the wine this morning, we're taking it with a symbol. And we're saying, my God has overcome. So, Father God, this morning, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Jesus, that you came and lived a perfect, sinless life, but you gave up your life in love. 
We thank you, Lord, that sin and death and the grave were defeated that moment on Calvary when you gave up your last breath. God, we thank you that that hell could not keep you, but instead you overcame and you rose again. And so this morning, God, as we come around this table, this Lord's Supper, as some call the Eucharist, this bread and this wine, we pray, Lord Jesus, as we take and we remember all that you've done, we do it in an attitude of victory and freedom. Because we honestly believe who the sun sets free is free indeed. So we thank you this morning, Lord, for your great victory on the cross of Calvary. We thank you because you are victorious, we are victorious. So this morning, God, we thank you that even though evil will come against us, even though your word, your word will say that even though the enemy comes against us like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord raises up a standard against it. And so, Father, we thank you this morning that no matter what evil may come, we are victorious and we are free, for you have overcome. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's take of the bread and the wine this morning. So just before we finish today, we've closed out this series today, this bigger series. And throughout this series, we've talked that God is bigger than our understanding. Quit trying to work God out because you never will. We've talked about that God is bigger than your doubts and fears. And just because you may doubt something doesn't mean that God hasn't already overcome. We've talked that about that God is bigger than anything man can build. So putting our trust in man, put our trust in God. We've talked that about God's bigger perspective. And his perspective is so much bigger than ours. We've talked about that God is bigger than our sin. And today we've talked about God is bigger than our enemy. And so just in these moments, just before we finish today, in the last 20 seconds... There may be something in your life right now where you are finding that you are struggling in. Whatever area of that life you're, that, that, that is causing issues right now, I want to tell you, God is bigger, God is greater, God is more victorious. And so as you leave today, leave knowing this, that you are people of victory, you are people of freedom, you are people of Jesus. And he has overcome the world. So do not fear. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. For he has left you with a peace and a hope. And a love. That transcends all understanding. You'll never try to understand it. But know and, with, know and leave knowing this. That God is for you. Not against you. He is with you. He is by, by your side. And there is a day that is coming. I don't know when it's going to be, but it's a day where we're going to celebrate. It's not going to be victory in Europe. It's going to be victory from this world. And so go knowing you are victorious people today. 
God bless you. Have a great week. We will see you next week as we talk about the ultimate victory, the resurrection of Jesus Christ.